Yesterday, my family and I were driving home from Sycamus, visiting my mom and her and her husband Paul. And uh, you know, and the, our kids sleep best when you've got some music on in the car. And it was bedtime. We were just coming into sort of radio range in Kamloops. So I thought oh, I'll just turn the turn the radio on, put some music on. I'll kind of chill them out, get to sleep. And so, so I, I turn on a station. I went, oh, that's. That's pretty bad. <laughs> so I flicked to another station, and I thought, man, Kamloops, what are you doing right now? Seriously. And so I flicked to a third one, and I should have known better, it seems. Um, and uh, it was just getting more and more awful. I don't know what happened, but the radio was not what I was expecting. <laughs> it was somewhere around here. But then, and I don't know why I didn't do this ear. Earlier, I just turned on CBC Radio to the music station, and I said to my wife, there is a God. And then I kind of took that back because it sounded a little bit sacrilegious or like, yeah, of course, of course there is, and this didn't prove it, but it was, it was the jazz hour that was on, and so my expectation being for some music around here was like, oh my goodness, thank you. The sun is shining somewhere right now. And uh, we're, we're looking at a text this morning where Jesus as we'll read, is riding into Jerusalem. And there are people that have expectation of what that's going to mean. And Jesus, it seems, is letting them down in a serious way, like my flicking through the radio stations there. But we'll find out that what, by the end of this week and by Sunday of next week, where their expectations are shifting in a major way. So listen with me. Open to Matthew chapter 21. We're jumping ahead in our Kingdom Come series. And I'm just going to read the first 17 verses this morning. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and, and bring them to me. If anyone says to you like anything, uh, just say that the Lord needs them. And he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and and, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They, They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very loud, large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, was stirred and, and they asked, who, who is this? The crowds answered this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he told them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame, they came to him at the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. 
Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Notice first, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he he sends his disciples to untie Uh, a colt, a young donkey for him to ride into Jerusalem. People are throwing their coats down on the road. Has anyone ever done that for you? Me neither. They are celebrating with a sort of zeal, an expectation of what he's going to bring with him. And this is actually a clear signal. You see, Jesus has been walking everywhere up to this point. But now he is going to ride into the city. This signals For everyone, this action is like a prophetic signal to everyone that he is coming as God's anointed, as the Messiah. And here Matthew picks up on the prophecy from Zechariah. He quotes 9.9, which says, Say to daughter Zion, meaning the Jewish people, God's, God's chosen people, to see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of the donkey. That Gentleness, just key in here for a second. We have a coming king. And one who we've seen throughout this gospel is having this authoritative power, miraculous power, this teaching authority that people just listen to him. But as Zechariah prophesied, the king that comes in this story is the humble king, the gentle one. See, notice what Jesus doesn't do. In the ancient world, when you went into battle, you went on a war horse. And here we see Jesus. It's almost an irony that he's riding in on a colt of a donkey. That is not the expectation that the people had on him. So he's not riding a war horse to kick out the dirty Romans as they thought of them. He's not there to overthrow the oppressors in the way that they think. He's actually there to deal with the the real oppressor, the evil that's in my heart. And if you don't mind me saying, maybe you do, the evil that's in your heart too. He has come to wage war and win a victory, but the way he is crowned king, well, we find out on Good Friday, he wears a crown of thorns. And he will be enthroned, he will. We find out in John chapter 12, it talks about his enthronement. And guess how he's enthroned? He's enthroned with his back strapped to a plank of wood. And he did it to win the greatest battle ever. To lay himself down out of selfless love for us. But of course, as we just read, this gentle king, he also stands up courageously when the temple leadership have created a system that is broken. He's bold. He's confident. He's driven. Jesus combines these character traits of gentleness and courage in a way that we almost see as mutually exclusive. Uh, In 1738, the the great uh, philosopher and preacher, Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon on Revelation 5. And in Revelation 5, Jesus is described at the same breath as being this, this, this lion, powerful, and also a little lamb that has been slain. Here's what he says. The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. Is sacrificed for food and clothing. But we see that Christ in this text is compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. 
There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as other words, otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incomparable in the same subject, in the same person. Edward goes on to begin contrasting and comparing um, these, these, what we see as contrasting traits. And Tim Keller summarizes like this. In Jesus, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, in entire dependence on God. And in Jesus, these traits, they're not intention. He's not flip-flopping between them. It's not a cause of mental breakdown or stress for him. These traits are just fully integrated elements of his personhood. Now, all through this series, we've been seeing that Jesus is ultimately calling us as his king. He says, follow me. Come be my disciples. Follow, follow me. Now, of course, uh, we don't become Jesus. He has a unique identity, uh, a unique vocation. We are not him but we are called to become like him. And following Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us means that we're going to be truth and love combined people too. And just think about how difficult it can be for us. If you've been around the block a few times, um, to be generous and kind, yet perfectly honest and truthful when we're having an important conversation with someone you know how difficult it can be to not flip-flop between these two. There's, I mean, there is the tell-it-like-it-is person. This person might even pride themselves uh, on this trait. But often the tell-it-like-it-is person, it doesn't just mean someone who's honest. It's often someone who's very, hmm, maybe who cares very little about how their words might impact those around them. And too often the quote-unquote truth is spoken without love. And when it's spoken without love, there's actually a very good chance that it isn't very truthful either. See, for the purpose of the truth being spoken, it's probably, without love combined, very likely bending that truth in my favor. So when she is quote-unquote telling the truth, well, good chance that version of the truth has been bent to her advantage. So the caution, if you think of yourself as a straight shooter, uh, tell it like it is her, your tendency may be to argue your point, even to the point where it's just winning that really matters to you, not the truth anymore. The reality is none of us has all the truth all the time. And the Apostle Paul writes that. It, that's taught in Scripture. He says, for now, like on this side of eternity, we see only in part. Then we'll see like face to face. So even our understanding of God and, and of the truth, he says, I mean, we are limited as humans. Each of us are. None of us is omniscient. We're not God. God knows the truth. That doesn't mean that you and I have access to all truth all the time, which should call us to listen really long. To listen without trying to formulate responses in our heads just to actually understand someone else, to love someone else. James writes, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And those words are always timely. 
that's not to say that the truth doesn't matter. The truth very much does. Paul says in Ephesians 4 um, that we are to be people who speak the truth in love. That's what a mature person in Christ looks like. That's actually what we're seeing embodied in Jesus right here in this text. Now, on the other hand, we, we may see ourselves as kind of, I'm a love and a, and a grace person, which is absolutely true. We see that God is love, that grace is at the center of the gospel. So if you're that kind of person, that's the right kind of person to be. But the truth part, ah, that can be a bit, you know, like offensive in our world. So it, it might work well for us to sort of hang in that space when things are all well in our world, but what happens when you need to set a boundary? What happens when you need to, to challenge a destructive force in our world? Like, you know, gals, <laughs> I think you need to be careful right now. Um, we don't know all the details of what she's going through, and she's not even here with us. So this looks like it's kind of going down the road of gossip, and so I think we should just pull back from this conversation. You know, that sort of case, being a grace person without concern for what is right and true, or if you're lacking the courage to say it, that can actually in itself become destructive. So in the face of something that's wrong, that needs to be addressed in our world, often the grace and love person, in the end, is not actually serving others, but just self-serving again. By not speaking with grace and truth combined, we actually become in a self-protection mode. Like, if I don't say anything, like, maybe I won't be the target in this situation. Besides, we might be tempted to think, who am I to actually speak some truth into this? So you now see that lack of courage, that inactivity, the refusal to speak truth in love turns out itself to be unloving. It turns out itself to be self-serving. But here's what we read in John 1.17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He doesn't flip-flop between the two. He is able to hold them together at the same time. And in the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, maybe we can do the same. Maybe that's what it means to follow Jesus too. We say, but how? Well, let me, let me give us a starting place at least. Look again at what Jesus has done for us on the cross, where this goes to on Good Friday. See, when we realize that we're so broken and lost that Jesus had to die for us, that does humble us into the ground. It means that we can't look at other people and say, well, I, just, I really am superior to them. I just am. We can't do that. Because we recognize that broken and self-centered people that we're looking at and maybe feeling the tendency to judge them and feel superior to them, but we're actually saying, no, my brokenness, my self-seeking might be different than theirs, but I'm just as broken and self-seeking in my own way too, so much so that Jesus had to die so that I could live. So from this place of humility, we can never use the truth as a blunt tool to hurt others because that sense of superiority, that self Serving. That's just been worked out of our hearts as we reflect on this reality that Jesus had to die to make my life possible. I am solely his by his grace. By no other reason do I have to be able to come before God the Father. None. And that enables us to say what to do what Paul tells us to in Philippians 4. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. When we get to know the living Christ and his love comes alive in our hearts, gentleness will be the result. I would add this, not to make you worried, but if gentleness is not the result, maybe you don't know the living Christ yet. 
And maybe you need to. Gentleness is what results when we meet him. But not only do we recognize that we're desperately in need of God's grace, when we look to the cross, we see that Jesus actually wanted to die for us. And that love for us should lift us to the skies. I ask a question. Was it nails that held Jesus to the cross? You might think, well, in a literal sense, yes. But no. Was it our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross and held him there? The answer again is no. He didn't have to do what he did for us, but he chose it freely. It was love, his love for you that kept him on the cross. That should fill us with confidence, knowing that he loved us in that way. Sometimes when I'm talking to people about following Jesus and we're talking about maybe a specific situation, they say, okay, so Dave, are you telling me you want me to be a doormat? No. (laughs) A doormat just sits there being stepped on. Jesus wasn't stepped on. He died. It's far worse than being a doormat. (laughs) Put it that way. Okay, so here's my line of, here's what I want to say. His death wasn't a tragedy of faith. Fate, pardon me. He chose it out of obedience to the plan he and the father had made and out of love for you and I he chose to lay down his agenda and actually let his physical life break apart to bring you healing so no following Jesus doesn't mean being a passive doormat it means actively choosing to lay down your life for the sake of those around you to seek their benefit that's what humility means humility is a chosen identity freely chosen identity It's making the decision to give of yourself for the sake of others. But it's only in knowing how loved we are first that we kind of have that courage and that conviction to do that very hard thing of loving and serving others in a completely self-emptied kind of way. Now notice what happens next. Jesus turns his attention to the temple, to the place God had chosen to make his presence known, to invite all nations to experience his loving leadership. It's important for us to know that when Jesus comes and he begins to clear out this uh, area in the temple, we need to know that the area he's clearing was called the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place in the temple where non-Jewish people are allowed to be. This was meant to be a place of quiet prayer for those who weren't Jewish, but who were seeking to get to know the one true God of Israel. Israel was, after all, called to be a light to the nations. That's what we read in Isaiah 49.6. From the beginning of God's great rescue plan, he called Abraham and his family. Why? For their own sake? No. He says, you will be a blessing to all people. They are called not for their sake, but for the sake of others, just as you and I are. So when Jesus sees what's happening in the temple, he quotes from Isaiah 56 verse 7 he says my house will be called a house of prayer and the full text goes on to say this prayer for all nations nations ethne in greek it means all people all cultures in the isaiah text god's plan is clear the role of israel was actually to make god's uh, salvation and life known to the rest of the nations to draw them toward god but by jesus day This court, this place that was meant for outsiders to become insiders or to come to the the love of God, it was bustling, but not with the nations. It was bustling with Jewish people, 
busying themselves, preparing for worship, but not actually doing what God had called them to be about and to do. So the robbing here, what does that mean? It's probably got a dual focus. I mean, the fact that they're selling animals uh, to be used for sacrifice, that's probably not the issue here. Animals were sold inside Jerusalem so that people wouldn't have to travel with them for miles and miles, potentially uh, harming the animals, and then they wouldn't be useful for sacrifice. Quite likely, the merchants were ripping people off. They were charging more than they should. And in that sense, they were robbing them financially. It's part of the issue here. And it's worthwhile for us to, to think about all of our business dealings. If we're followers of Jesus, have to be just and true and good and right. We need to be fair. And by the way, the gospel is never for sale. Christian ministry is not a business. So that can still be a problem today, yes, that we need to reflect on. But the big issue for Jesus, and I think it would be easy to miss, is where the market is set up. The temple leaders had allowed it to be set up in the only place Gentiles are allowed to be. They are essentially excluding anyone from outside of Israel to come and discover the grace of the living God. That's the core issue here. They are robbing the opportunity for Gentiles to draw near to the one true God. The fact that it's not full of Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles shows us how far Israel at that period had strayed from the heart of God. Rather than reaching their neighbors and being a missionary hub and saying, come, come discover the goodness of God, they are excluding those who might otherwise be coming. And that sort of issue can be the same for churches today. We need to be aware of it as a community. See, it's possible for, for churches to be so busy with programs that are designed to create a comfortable, nice, easy, dare I even say consumer approach, that's for those who are already believers that we could inadvertently block or exclude those who are looking for the truth, who are searching to find out more about God and the hope he offers. See, rather than being a people who are ready to do the, the messy work of making our Christian community open for those who seek God, we could desire comfort and convenience or things as they used to be in a way that insulates us from the rest of the world that God loves and he sent his son to, to win for himself. Because the truth is, missionary work is, is hard work. Christian community uh, will get messy in that sense. And yet that is what God had called his first people to be about. And us now as a part of that too. We belong to a missionary God. And that means we're a missionary people. We have to have a heart for our whole world. And to be honest here, I, I see a lot of that at Summit. A lot of the heart for the world part of me. <laughs> and I just want to encourage you to keep going in that direction. Who we are is to be a missionary people, adopting God's heart for the world. But where does that focus, the boldness come from? Here's where, I think. Here's the next thing we read. We read that the blind and the lame, they came to him, to Jesus at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Don't you hear what the children are saying, they asked him? The leaders, they're thinking, Jesus, if you were really actually a holy man, some sort of prophet like they say, you would tell these children to shut your mouth, shut their mouths. See, they're saying that you're like God's saving king. Really? Do you really want to take that role on yourself? And look at Jesus' answer. Yes, 
Yes, I hear and I approve. Yes, I hear and I actually receive what they're saying of me. You think they're foolish to be saying it. They are not, actually. You're foolish to be rejecting them. And then Jesus takes it further, way further. See, he asks them a question now. He says to them, and doesn't it sound familiar, what the children are saying? Haven't we read something about this before somewhere? Look again at verse 16. Jesus replied, have you never read? I think there's another slide for that. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Now, these are Bible experts he's speaking to. So yeah, actually, they have read the Bible before. But Jesus says to them, like, he's, he's pointing out that they've really misunderstood what the scriptures are saying. Now, by quoting Psalm 8, Jesus is making an incredible claim about himself. What's that? Here, we're going to do a quiz. I've done this quiz with you before, but we'll do it again because you might not have been here or you might have forgotten. So first question, who are the children singing about when they say Hosanna to the son of David? Yeah, classic Sunday school answer. It is Jesus. Well done, you. Next questions. The next two are true or false. Ready? The psalm that Jesus just quoted, Psalm 8, mentions children singing songs of praise. True or false? True. Great. We are acing this quiz. Well, well, that's great. Next question. Jesus used this psalm to explain what is happening with himself at that moment in the temple. True or false? True. Yes. Right again. Quick recap. The children are singing Hosanna to Jesus. The psalm Jesus quotes is about children singing songs of praise. And Jesus says this psalm explains what's happening to him right now. Right? We're all on board with that? Okay. Last question. Here's it gets tricksy here. Ready? In the psalm, who is the Lord that the psalmist is referring to? You can go and read it in Psalm 8 if you want to. Anybody want to just hazard a guess? It's another Sunday school answer. The Lord. Okay. Jesus has just used a text in reference to the sovereign Lord, Israel's God, Yahweh. It's about Yahweh receiving praise, and he uses it in reference to whom? Himself. These kids are singing to Jesus. Jesus knew this. The religious leaders knew this. And then Jesus says, essentially, let me tell you what's happening here. Psalm 8, verse 2 is happening right now. In Jesus, Israel's true king has indeed come, but more. Israel's one true God is standing in front of them in the flesh. Now, every single week we've been studying Matthew's gospel. And every single week, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have seen how Matthew is presenting Jesus as none other than God with us. Every single chapter, we've seen something of that. And that is remarkable because Matthew is a Jewish person writing to other Jewish people. And of all the people in the world, they believe there is only one God. And yet something has happened in this community that they would write about Jesus and enfleshed one stands in front of them who dies on a cross, rises again, and say, that is our one true God. 
So we're not just meeting an interesting figure in history. Matthew is showing us again and again that we are meeting the God who called the universe into existence, who holds the molecules that are holding you together. He's holding those together moment by moment. And that is the same one who was this gentle, humble king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt in a particular city at a time in history, and then he will wear a crown of thorns and bear a cross and the nails for you. Same person. That is the same Jesus I met when I was five in a truly profound way, and he came to be alive within me. It's the one I met in a truly and profound way when I was 20 years old again. When I was trying to figure out who I was, he showed me that I was his. That's the one we meet here. And this is the same Jesus that we meet in our prayer, that we meet as we gather to celebrate him, who is here even now, who's been listening to our prayers this morning. Um, a couple of weeks ago when I got back from Ukraine, I mentioned that we had done a prayer walk and I was just blown away by how the students of that church were praying for their city, that they had that missionary heart for the people around them. That's the university behind there. It's this beautiful old school. And uh, we came up and we, and we were right in front of that entryway there to the school and we gathered around. We just began to pray. And as we were praying, we we're like, you know, maybe God has something. Maybe God has something uh, like an inroad. Could we pray for an inroad to just share the good news of Jesus? If this, if this news is true, everyone should know it, right? And so let's just begin to pray for that. And there was no kind of open doors at this moment with the university. So we were praying. This is just a couple weeks ago. I woke up this morning and Dan Sabell, our, our missionary there, sent me this message. He said, good evening, Dave. Hey, just wanted to update you on some happenings that our team had prayed about for the university. Remember, we were, we were chatting about tr tr trying to get on, a, on at the campus or at least close to it. We were just thinking, man, if there was a building that was nearby that we could, you know, teach English and tell people about Jesus, that'd be awesome. Huh. Well, God did one better. Here's our expectation. Here's what he does. One of the students in the advanced uh, class started an English club on the campus and not just on the campus, but the epicenter of the campus, the famous blue room. Thanks for your prayers. Continued prayer. The living Jesus is still answering your prayers and mine today, this moment. Here's what this means for us. As we've seen today, Jesus is not just another guy, maybe a good religious teacher, a moral example, even a miracle worker. If he was that, then we could take or leave what he says about himself and about spiritual reality. Whether we liked it or not, we could kind of blend it in with what we're already believing. But what if he really is God and King? What if this one, the humble king who rides in for you, is none other than God himself? C.S. Lewis, I think he's right when he says, we, we may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a, as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing Mild approval. That's what we see in this text. The children, boy, Jesus says they actually get it. They sing his praise. They are adoring him, adoring King Jesus and the religious leaders of the day who are keeping, who are totally off base with what God's heart even is for the city. They're standing there and they're in hatred and terror describes their posture. So the question for us is this, who are you in the story? 
which voice is your voice today? Are you with the kids and our kids here this morning adoring Jesus? Or are you with the leaders, arms crossed, threatened, resisting his loving leadership? Where are you today? Will this Jesus be your king? You might be here and you're thinking, well, Dave, boy, I don't have all the information yet. You know what? Okay. My encouragement would be seek it out. Look for the truth. I'd love to have coffee with you. <laughs> That's my answer. Keep looking for it. Is this the whole Jesus thing for real or not? We've got to wrap up because we're out of time. So let me say this. And we are at the end of my message. You didn't miss anything. When we lack courage or we feel like, who am I to stand up against injustices in our world? Who am I to actually be sent out with this good news in my hands and heart and, and lips to share with kindness? The answer is you are the beloved child of the most high God if you've put your trust in Jesus. That's who you are. So you can actually walk into the world with deep confidence. The one who has your back is the same one who put the stars in the sky and who's drawing history to its good and glorious future. So ask yourself as we finish this morning, what areas of my life do I need or at least want greater courage to follow Jesus? Maybe it's simply the courage to be named with the name of Jesus among your coworkers, your classmates. Maybe it's the courage to listen long to someone without any sort of judgment, just listen to them and have an empathetic heart. Maybe the question for you is, where do I need to be more generous and gracious with others? Are you feeling superior to others and unable to forgive them or work for their good? My encouragement is look to Jesus, the one who holds these two things, not intention, but perfectly bound up in himself. That's who Jesus is making us to be as a people, his followers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you reveal yourself as both the one who is gentle and humble and yet who has the courage to win the world through this act of generous self-giving love. And we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to make you present to us moment by moment. God, give us an awareness this week of your presence with us. Help us to pull these two things off in attention for us that they would just become part of our personhood as well, that we would be grace and truth combined sort of people. And Lord, for anyone who's maybe just wondering, asking these big questions, what if Jesus really is who he is? God, I pray that your spirit would just be working and, and, and revealing yourself to them this week. And Lord, even as we prepare to celebrate Jesus, your death and your resurrection together as a community this week, we pray that it would, it would stir our hearts again, maybe like it never has that our response to you would be just adoration like we see in the children. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.